You're listening to the St John's Diamond Creek Podcast. This episode presented by Senior Minister Tim Johnson. Hi, I'm Kylie. Today's Bible reading comes from 1 Samuel chapter 9 through to chapter 10 verse 16. There was a Benjamite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherath, the son of Elphia of Benjamin. Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. Now the donkeys belonging to Saul's father, Kish, were lost. And Kish said to his son Saul, Take one of the servants with you and go look for the donkeys. So he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and through the area around Shalassar, but they did not find them. Then they went on into the district of Shalim, but the donkeys were not there. Then he passed through the territory of Benjamin, but they did not find them. When they reached the district of Zuf, Saul said to the servant who was with him, Come, let's go back or my father will stop thinking about the donkeys and start worrying about us. But the servant replied, Look, in this town there is a man of God. He is highly respected and everything he says comes true. Let's go there now. Perhaps he will tell us what way to go. Saul said to his servant, If we go, what can we give the man? The food in our sacks is gone. We have no gift to take the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered him, Look, he said, I have a quarter of a shekel of gold. Sorry, silver. (laughs) A shekel of silver. I will give it to the man of God so that he will tell us which way to take. Formerly in Israel, if someone went to inquire of God, they would say, Come, let us go to the seer, because the prophet of today used to be called a seer. Good, said Saul to his servant. Come, let's go. So they set out for the town where the man of God was. As they were going up the hill to the town, they met some young women coming out to draw water, and they asked them, Is the seer here? He is, they answered. He's ahead of you. Hurry now, he's just come to our town today, for the people have a sacrifice at the high place. As soon as you enter the town, you will find him before he goes to the high place to eat. The people will not begin eating again until he comes because he must bless the sacrifice afterwards. Those who are invited will eat. Go up now, you should find him about this time. They went up to the town, and as they were entering it, there was Samuel, coming towards them on his way to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel. About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him ruler over my people Israel. He will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked on my people, for their cry has reached me. When Samuel caught sight of Saul, the Lord said to him, This is the man I spoke to you about. He will govern my people. Saul approached Samuel in the gateway and asked, Would you please tell me where the seer's house is? I am the seer, Samuel replied. Go up ahead of me to the high place. 
for today you are to eat with me, and in the morning I will send you on your way, and you will tell all that is in your heart. As for the donkeys you lost three days ago, do not worry about them. They have been found, and to whom is all the desire of Israel turned if not to you and your whole family line? Saul answered, But am I not a Benjamite from the smallest tribe of Israel? And is not my clan the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why do you say such a thing to me? Then Samuel brought Saul and his servant into the hall and seated them at the head of those who were invited, about thirty in number. Samuel said to the cook, Bring the piece of meat I gave you, the one I told you to lay aside. So the cook took up the thigh with what was on it and set it in front of Saul. Samuel said, Here is what has been kept for you. Eat because it was set aside for you for this occasion from the time I said I have invited guests. And Saul dined with Samuel that day. After they came down from the high place to the town, Samuel talked with Saul on the roof of his house. They rose about daybreak and Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Get ready, and I will send you on your way. When Saul got ready, he and Samuel went outside together. As they were going down to the edge of the town, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servants to go on ahead of us. And the servant did so. But you stay here for a while, so that I may give you a message from God. Then Samuel took a flask of olive oil and poured it on Saul's head, and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? When you leave me today, you will meet two men near Rachel's tomb at Zelzar on the border of Benjamin. They will say to you, The donkeys you set out to find to look for have been found, and now your father has stopped thinking about them and is worried about you. He is asking, What shall I do about my son? Then you will go on from there, until you reach the great tree of Tabor. Three men going up to worship God at Bethel will meet you there. One will be carrying three young goats, another three loaves of bread, and another a skin of wine. They will greet you and offer you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from them. After that, you will go to Gibeah of God, where there is a Philistine outpost. As you approach the town, you will meet a procession of prophets coming down from the high place, with lyres, timbrels, pipes and harps being played before them, and they will be prophesying. The Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you, and you will prophesy with them, and you will be changed into a different person. Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I surely will come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, but you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. As Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart, and all these signs were fulfilled that day. When he and his servant arrived at Gibeah, a procession of prophets met him. The Spirit of God came powerfully upon him, and he joined in their prophesying. When all those who had formerly known him saw him prophesying with the prophets, they asked each other, 
What is this that has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? A man who lived there answered, And who is their father? So it became a saying, Is Saul also among the prophets? After Saul stopped prophesying, he went to the high place. Now Saul's uncle asked him and his servant, Where have you been? Looking for the donkeys, he said. But when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. Saul's uncle said, Tell me what Samuel said to you. Saul replied, He assured us that the donkeys had been found. But he did not tell his uncle what Samuel had said about the kingship. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Back in the 1930s in India, there was a mother who was concerned about her son. He was addicted to sugar and eating unhealthily. So she took him with her on a long and hot journey to see the leader, Gandhi. They had to walk for hours to get there. And when she finally reached Gandhi, she asked him to tell her son to stop eating sugar, that it wasn't good for his health. Well, Gandhi replied, I cannot tell him that, but you can bring him back in two weeks and then I'll talk to him. Well, the mother was confused. She was upset even, and she took the boy home. Two weeks later, she made the long journey and came back with him. And this time Gandhi looked directly at the boy and said, boy, you should stop eating sugar. It is bad for your health. And the boy nodded and promised that he wouldn't do it. And the boy's mother was puzzled and she said, why didn't you tell him that two weeks ago when I brought him here to see you? And Gandhi replied, two weeks ago, I was eating a lot of sugar myself. What sort of stories will people tell about you? When people who have known you and been influenced by you are reminiscing and talking about you, what stories, what episodes of your life will they recount to each other? Stories are powerful. We use them to represent something of the reality of a person. Uh, Stories embody the characteristics of the person, uh, the leader being described. In the case of Gandhi, the story that I told spoke of his integrity, that he was someone who led by example. Well, today we're looking at a story of a leader. It's the story of Saul and the donkeys. This is our first introduction to Saul, who becomes the first king of Israel. And we might well ask the question, why is this story being told? Of all the stories that could be told about Saul, why has this one been chosen? And why is this the first story we hear when we meet him? What's it trying to teach us? What aspects of his character is it portraying to us? Now, we need to be careful here because stories can be subtle and Hebrew narrative is often very much so. There's not a moral at the end. There's no explicit application in the text. We need to read it carefully and thoughtfully as we think about what is it trying to tell us about this man and what are the implications for us. 
So in verses one and two of our passage, we get Saul's credentials, and they are pretty impressive. He comes from a large family. His father, Kish, is a man of standing. He's respected and wealthy. Uh, And that becomes obvious when we see that they own donkeys and have servants too. Uh, Saul is extremely handsome. Or if you're familiar with the movie Zoolander, he is really, really, really ridiculously good looking. Uh, We're told that there is no young man in Israel who is as handsome as he is. He's also very tall. We're told he's a head taller than anyone else. Now that might add to this image of his attractiveness. He's tall, he's dark, he's handsome. But if you're looking for a military leader and a warrior, then the fact that he is so tall also speaks of his physical strength too. And with that description, we're then introduced to Saul's quest in verses 3 through to 14. His quest is to find his father's missing donkeys. And we follow him and his servant as they wander around trying to locate them. Now, that might be showing Saul in a positive light as a dutiful and diligent son. But other aspects of the story suggest a different emphasis. There seems to be an ironic twist here on the shepherd leader image. So Israel's great leaders like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and then later David are all competent and skillful shepherds. And so leaders of Israel were thought of as shepherds of the people. You know, God himself is described as a shepherd in Psalm 23. Jesus later describes himself as the good shepherd. Leaders of the church are called pastors, shepherds who lead the flock. But here, Saul fails in this respect because he can't even locate a few donkeys, let alone sheep, that have wandered from his father's house. You know, he he never finds them. He's not a good shepherd. And as the story is told, we see a constant contrast between Saul and his servant. Uh, Hebrew narrative often does this too, where you've got two characters played off against each other. So as the story unfolds, Saul is the one who gives up, verse 5. He can't find the animals, so he just wants to go home. But in contrast, the servant wants to persist and has an idea for how they might proceed, right? The servant knows there's a man of God in the town near them. Now, this man turns out to be Samuel, who is by now famous throughout Israel. And yet, despite his fame and how close he lives to Saul, Saul doesn't seem to have even heard of him. Uh, And later on in verse 18, we have a comical scene where Saul walks up to Samuel, eyeballs him and says, excuse me, can you tell me where the Sears house is? That's like someone walking up to Anthony Albanese at a party and saying, Excuse me, mate, can you point out the Prime Minister of Australia to me? Saul is oblivious to Samuel's existence, even though all Israel knows who he is. Instead, it's the servant who suggests that they go and consult this man of God who might be able to help them locate the donkeys. But then there's a problem with that idea. 
Saul points out that they've got no money to give him and no food either. Scratch that plan. No, no, says the servant. I've got some money we can give to him. So Saul, who is wealthy and who's in charge of the expedition, hasn't got a brass razu. But the servant, he comes up with the cash. So at every point, the leader is led by the servant. And the servant, not the leader, takes all the initiative. That is not a great story to tell about the future leader of the nation. So let's pause and draw some application from this. One of the issues that raises, I think, is about what people look for in their leaders. Saul has all the physical attributes, all the wealth, and all the family connections we would want. He's got a hugely impressive CV, but he seems to be lacking as a leader. He lacks in spiritual sensitivity and discernment. His servant is the one who suggests that they actually consult God in this matter. And there are already questions being raised about his character here, which the subsequent chapters will draw out even further. It's easy for us to focus on a person's credentials rather than their character when we're choosing leaders. And it's easy to be swayed by physical attributes rather than the spiritual. But that's not the model that the Bible gives us for choosing those who should exercise leadership. What we have here in a story is outlined for us in other places, like in the letters of Titus and Timothy, where Paul lists the criteria for Christian leadership. And the Bible emphasizes that leadership is primarily about character, godly behavior, and a commitment to the gospel. Now, of course, we also want leaders who are competent. And the competence of a person is, is often spelt out via their credentials. But the most important thing is character. Character trumps credentials. All of us have heard too many stories of failed leadership and broken lives to ignore this reality. Leaders who fell into patterns of sin and undermined the good work that they had done. The Bible emphasizes character and spiritual depth as vital for Christian leadership. And so we need to prioritize the spiritual and our character. With our AGM approaching, we need to choose new leaders for this church. Who do you think would be the best people to serve? Who are the people with godly character and a commitment to the gospel as well as competence? Now, I regularly drive home from leaders meeting at this church giving thanks to God because we have been blessed with such godly leaders and long may that continue. Well, back to our story. While Saul thinks that he's on a quest for some missing donkeys, there's something else that God is doing here as well. Uh, Samuel's been told by God that Saul is coming. So in chapter 9, verse 16, he says, uh, About this time tomorrow, 
to, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him ruler over my people Israel. He will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. So God is on a quest to anoint Saul as king of Israel. And do you notice that the key task that God has for him as ruler is that he will rescue Israel from the Philistines who've been oppressing them. So Samuel sends the servant on ahead so that he is alone with Saul. And then he anoints him with oil, marking him out as the king of Israel. Samuel then tells Saul about a series of things that are going to happen. There'll be three signs that will take place as Saul leaves. And they're meant to encourage him and to prepare him for what God wants him to do next. The first sign is meeting two men who will confirm what Samuel has said about the donkeys. The second sign is that three men on their way to worship God will offer him two loaves of bread. Now, this bread was reserved for the priests. And so giving it to Saul confirms his new role and status as one who is anointed by God. The third sign is that Saul will meet a group of prophets. God's spirit will come upon Saul and he'll prophesy, confirming that God has empowered him for the task ahead. So these three signs will take place. And then in chapter 10, verse 7, it's, this verse is absolutely key. Samuel says to Saul, that when these signs have taken place, once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. So Saul is supposed to do something. He's supposed to do whatever his hand finds to do, and God will be with him and will empower him to do it. So what is Saul supposed to do? Well, remember, he's been appointed to deliver Israel from the Philistines. And did you notice a little hint at the location of the third sign? Verse 5. After that, you will go to Gibeah of God, where there is a Philistine outpost. So right where this is to occur, there just happens to be an occupying force of Philistine soldiers. The suggestion here is that the thing that Saul is to do is to take on the Philistines, to publicly commence his role as the king. So what actually happens? Well, the predicted signs are fulfilled. Saul meets the prophets and is filled with God's Holy Spirit now he's supposed to do what his hand finds to do. And what does his hand find to do? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. He goes home. And we have this anticlimactic and frankly disappointing conversation between Saul and his uncle where Saul mentions the donkeys and that he met Samuel, but he says nothing about his anointing as the leader of Israel. Saul has shirked his role and his responsibility and he has failed to do what the Lord has appointed him to do. Here we have a leader 
who fails to lead. And that gets reinforced as the story continues. When Saul's son, Jonathan, is the one who attacks the Philistines and does the very job that Saul himself was supposed to do. Now, we're not in the same position as Saul in so prominent or particular a role as the king of Israel. But there is still a challenge for us of God's calling upon us and what we will do about it. Uh, In the Anglican Church, we regularly pray a prayer of confession together using the following words. Heavenly Father, you have loved us with an everlasting love, but we have broken your holy laws and have left undone what we ought to have done. So we acknowledge sins of commission, that we've done things that we shouldn't have done, but also sins of omission, failing to do things we should have done. Now we need to be careful here. Sometimes not doing something that would have been good to do is just a missed opportunity rather than sin. I mean, all of us have to make choices about what we do and what we don't do. None of us has unlimited resources, time, money, and energy. So we do need to choose, and we can't do everything. But we can fail to do things that God wants us to do. Sometimes there are explicit commands from God. Love your neighbor as yourself. Pray for those who persecute you. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And so failing to do those things requires us to admit our fault before God. But there are other situations, I think, where God is calling us specifically to do something, an inner sense of calling and using our gifts for God in a particular way. I had that sense through praying and thinking that God was calling me into pastoral leadership in the church. And it was a calling that was confirmed by trusted Christian friends when I spoke to them about it. And I was on that trajectory to follow that sense of call. But when I'd completed my studies, I was offered the dream job, lecturing in psychology at uni. So what should I do? What was God calling me to do? Again, I'm glad that I had godly Christian friends who spoke into my life at that point. And at the end of the day, I did have a strong sense that God was calling me into pastoral ministry, that he'd gifted me for it, that it was affirmed by others around me, and not to do it would be to neglect the task that God had for me to do. I needed to do what my hand found for me to do. Do you have a sense that God is calling you to a particular task or a particular leadership role? God could be calling you into pastoral leadership or cross-cultural mission. God could be calling you to work in children's or youth ministry. God could be calling you to be willing to stand up for him at school 
or at work. God could be calling you to be a witness for him at your aged care facility, at your sports club, your community group. God could be calling you to serve in a church leadership role. God could be calling you to mentor or disciple new Christians or to run an alpha course. God could be calling you to ministries that help the poor and the marginalised. God could be calling you to a number of things and the challenge today is what will you do about it? Will you do what your hand finds for you to do or will you just go home, ignore it and definitely not mention it to anyone else for fear of what it might mean? Again, I'd want to emphasise the importance of Christian community here. Talk to your life group or your trusted Christian friends. What is God's call for you and how will you serve him? We get to see the failed opportunity here for Saul as an external viewer. But it can be hard to see in our own lives. And it's easy to make excuses for Saul in this situation. Maybe God should have been more explicit about what he wanted him to do. Maybe he was timid, shy, or a bit doubtful about his abilities. Yep, sure, all of those things. But they don't seem to excuse Saul in this story. And it's easy for us to do the same, to suppress the sense that God is calling us to do things for him and to make excuses about why it's too hard. But all of us will be called to give an account before God of what we've done with the opportunities, the gifts and the resources he's provided us with. God calls people and he equips us for the tasks that he has for us and he wants us to be faithful. Now, you might be hearing this and feeling extraordinarily guilty because maybe you're very conscious of a missed opportunity. You're conscious of something that you feel God wanted you to do, but you didn't do it. What should you do about that? Well, firstly, remember the forgiveness of God. Right? The reason we confess our sins of omission as well as commission is that God forgives us for both. If you're worried, confess it to God, confident of his forgiveness. But secondly, be assured that your failures, my failures, won't ultimately wreck the plans of God. Saul fails with his task here, but God still ensures it gets done. It happens years later, and it happens through Jonathan, not Saul, but it still happens. So having confessed your failure and received forgiveness, don't live with the burden of what might have been. Because God is sovereign still, and he will achieve his purposes despite our failings. And we can be confident of both the forgiveness of God and the certainty that God will work his plans to completion because of Jesus. Jesus was the true king 
the great king, the promised king, who didn't fail in the task that God had set before him. He was utterly faithful and he perfectly completed what God had set out for him to do. He lived his life in complete accordance with the will and plans of God, neither doing what he ought not to have done, nor failing to do what he ought to have done. His death on the cross and rising to new life fulfilled God's purposes and provided complete forgiveness to us and a relationship with God through him. He sends God's spirit on his people to empower us for service so that we can do the task that God has set before us. And he'll come again in glory and power to bring all of creation, all of God's plans and all of our service to perfect completion. So what is God calling you to do? What are your current opportunities to serve God? Will you grasp them and step out in faith? God calls people and he equips us for the tasks that he has for us. And he wants us to be faithful. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you can do so in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. Just search for St. John's Diamond Creek.